take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 22. And if you're doing the math, you're looking at that going, Michael, are we really going to do three, two and a half chapters today? Yeah, we're going to read a lot of scripture. I hope it's okay to read scripture in church. Uh, we're going to read a lot of it this morning. We're going to cover a large narrative section. There's going to be a small narrative section that we cover, and then we're going to get to point number one, and then we're going to cover a larger, much larger section and get to point number two. So this is only a two-point message, so it shouldn't take me more than an hour. We are still talking about Paul, and I'll be honest, this week I was excited at the beginning of the week. I read the passage and I thought, Finally, we're getting past Paul's disobedience. He's, he's about to turn a corner, and, and, and we're going to get that message where he hears it finally and, and does things differently, and we, we, I, can, I can change my tone as a, as a preacher and, and, do, and, and, and preach differently and talk about different things. And then I read the passage again, and I thought, uh-oh. And then I read it a third time, and I was like, oh, man. And then I read some other guys that, smarter than me, and I really went, oh no, we haven't turned a corner yet. We are getting there. It won't be long. As a matter of fact, the next message, the air conditioner turned my pages for me, the next message next week, we, we get to do that. We, we get to talk about some better things, and we'll talk about the message that Paul preached to Agrippa, and then we'll see him on the sea, and we're almost through with Acts. By the time we get to the end of this message, we'll only have, I think, two chapters, two and a half chapters left uh, in Acts, and we'll be, we'll be through with this series that we started 150 years ago. But, but today, Paul comes close. He, he's got the message. He's been told something. Jesus appears to him again. And you think, oh, he's got it. This time, He's turned the corner, and, and then we read a little bit, and ugh, no. Can anybody here relate to that? I can. Can anybody relate to the idea of getting hammered by God? Hey, Michael, are you paying attention? Michael, look, look, me, me I'm the fuck. Michael, God just knocking, just doing things, uh, tapping me on the shoulder here, slapping me on the back of the head there. And, uh, and uh, oh, yeah, I got it. Oh, that's okay, good. Yeah, and then, and then I've, I've, I think I've got it figured out some more. And, and, and I make a decision, and, and I decide, well, certainly this is the correct answer to what I'm going through because God said that thing. He got my attention a little while ago, so I'm I'm on the right track. Everything's wonderful. Everything's, no, it's not because you're still not listening. I, I maybe, I'm probably the only one here that's gone through that because I didn't get very many amens. I got a lot of head nodding, but I think you were just agreeing that I've screwed up. Uh, I don't know that I, I, I got any agreement that, that you've done it, but I'll assume you probably have. I think it's a safe assumption. Who is Lord? Who is Lord in our lives? That's, that's the question we're asking. That's really the two points this morning from this passage. Let's, let's kind of recap. I'm not going to preach two sermons this morning like I did last week, I promise. But we do want to recap just a little bit. Paul has arrived in Jerusalem. He got a lukewarm uh, welcome. Uh, everybody was kind of happy to see him. The elders of the church, James, yay, great what's going on in, with the Gentiles, but... They're not real fond of you around here, Paul. He, he got that welcome when he came in. Remember, I contend he is not supposed to be in Jerusalem at all. He is already supposed to be in Rome. This has been a long detour that's about to get a lot longer. Longer than he would have ever imagined. He thought he was just coming to Jerusalem, drop off some money, and leave. And that's not going to be the way it works out. So when he gets to Jerusalem, he gets this lukewarm welcome from James. James gives him this idea to make all these believing Jews who were basically Pharisees and the way they taught and the way they thought, they didn't hold the office of Pharisee, but that's what they were kind of following. Uh, make them happy, Paul, by doing these things. And he takes this bad advice and he gets attacked for it. Didn't work. He goes to the temple to do all the things he is supposed to. He hasn't done anything wrong and the mob attacks him and half kills him. 
But he has this great idea. I'll talk to him. He, he talks to the tribune. We learn his name is Claudius Lysias. We learned that a little bit later. Uh, actually, we'd learned that this morning if we were just now reading it for the first time. He, quote, rescues him by arresting him. And uh, he says, let me, let me talk to him. I can convince him, right? So he gives his testimony. I was, I was like y'all. I was a Pharisee. And then the Damascus Road happened. And, and then I came to Jerusalem. And God said, don't stay in Jerusalem. Get out. I'm sending you to, uh, uh, to the Gentiles. And, uh, or, or get out. But, but, but God, they'll believe my testimony. And, and uh, he said, no, they won't. Go to the Gentiles. And this crowd that he's given his testimony to attacks him again. Uh, he never gets to share the gospel with the crowd. He never gets to talk to them about Jesus. Claudius rescues him again. Going to flog him this time. Going to beat him. Try to get the truth out of him. Well, they don't like you, Paul. Here, let me whip you until you tell me why. But, but Paul says, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this. So Claudius doesn't want to do that. And to fix it, Claudius says, well, I'm gonna, this seems like a religious matter to me. This isn't a Roman thing. You haven't done anything wrong as far as I'm concerned. Rome did allow the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court that Paul is about to appear before, did allow them to uh, um, institute, to, to apply capital punishment for uh, defiling the temple, which was the, the main accusation against Paul here. So Claudius would have been fine with that. Y'all need to kill him for that. No problem, but we're going to have a true court, uh, a true uh, trial for this. We're going to do it the right way. So that's where we end up. Chapter 22, verse 30, is uh, where we're going to start. Uh, I may have put it wrong on the screen. It might say verse 20. I didn't mean to go that far back. Yeah, it does say that. Uh, we're actually starting at verse 30 of chapter 22. Remember, chapter numbers and verse numbers aren't inspired text. People added those uh, many, 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 many years after the translation, after the writing of the Bible. So sometimes our numbers don't quite fit the theme or fit the topic. And this is one of those cases. Verse 30, if we were doing it correctly, would actually be in chapter 23. But there's no point in changing that. Read with me. 22 verse 30. This will not be on the screen since it's so much text. So feel free to use a Bible, one of those red Bibles in front of you. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that one home with you. You can have it as our gift to you. The next day, since he, the tribune, Claudius Lysias, wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and instructed the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to convene. He brought Paul down and placed him before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. The high priest, Ananias, ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Well, things didn't start out very well, did they? Paul's been nice here. There's, there's nothing about that statement that, that should have gotten him slapped. I, he, this, is, this is just, I'm, it's actually fairly typical of how you would begin a testimony in a court where you've been accused of doing bad things. Hey, I haven't done any bad things. Just kind of makes sense. Now, they didn't appreciate it because they were convinced that the verdict had already been given, at least in their minds. He was guilty until proven innocent in the minds of Ananias and the, and the Sanhedrin. So, because he makes this statement of innocence, apparently, slap him, shut him up. Now, then Paul was not so nice. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Sound like anybody else we know from the New Testament? A little bit of Jesus coming out in him here because he told the Pharisees the same thing. The problem is Jesus was a little more, well, God. Paul isn't. That wasn't Jesus' flesh. That was God speaking judgment. In this case, seems to be a little bit more of Paul's flesh coming out. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You're sitting there judging me according to the law, and yet in violation of the law, are you ordering me to be struck? See, Paul knew the law. He knew what they should and shouldn't be doing. So he's going to use this against them in this case. The problem is he also knows how a court like this is supposed to go as far as the witness is concerned or the accused is concerned. So he has overstepped his boundaries as well. 
getting a little sarcastic, a little jerky. I don't understand anyone who would use sarcasm. Verse 4, those standing nearby said, do you revile God's high priest? See, they knew the law too. Verse 5, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. Really, Paul? Maybe he didn't see him. Maybe, maybe he uh, really didn't know which one was the high priest. Maybe he didn't hear who said, slap him. Maybe he didn't know that was the case. But in the Sanhedrin, in this court, it would be clear as they sat and the, the, based on the clothes they were wearing, who the high priest was. So eh, this statement's a little questionable. But Paul does go on to say, understanding what he had done, Still in verse 5, for it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. See, they used the law against him. He, he used the law. Law says you can't slap me. And they said, the law says obey your ruler. They didn't say that. They implied it. You'd speak that way to the high priest. But he's almost, you know, throwing the law back at him. Uh-huh, we're okay with following whichever law we want to at the moment, huh? Maybe a little... I totally read it as sarcasm, but that's because, well, I am. And, and then he says, you must not speak evil of the ruler. Verse 6, when Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin. He cried out there means he repeatedly yelled is the idea uh, and behind that verb. Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Over and over he yelled this. Paul's trying to start a mob. He has learned his politics, apparently, in the last day from everybody else in town. And that's all he's trying to do is, is start a ruckus. When he, and it worked, by the way. Verse 7, when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducee, Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees affirmed them all. The shouting grew loud, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party Pharisees' party got up and argued vehemently, we find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Look real quickly, just skim the previous verses we just read, all the things that Paul said, and show me the gospel he presented. You can't. Here you've got the Supreme Court of Israel. You have the highest authority in Judaism, and Paul has started a fight. He's, he's, he's started off nice, now he's been a little jerky, a little sarcastic, and then he started a fight among them in order to save his skin, to stop the proceedings. We don't know, but we do know he did not present the gospel. Verse 10, when the uh, dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down Take him away from them and bring him into the barracks. Verse 11. Here's the first point this morning. Trust in Jesus. And that's, that's not a verb necessarily. This is not, I'm not putting that up there as a command. I'm putting that as an adjective or as a noun. This is trust in Jesus. This is what trust in Jesus looks like. Jesus comes and speaks to him, verse 11. The following night, the Lord, Curios, stood by him and said, the Lord stood by him. Y'all, this is not a, a vision. This is not uh, a dream. This is not uh, uh, words that he understood coming from somewhere, something he felt in his heart. The Lord stood by him. Just like in Damascus, or on the road to Damascus, the Lord stood before him. He saw the Lord. Just like the Macedonian call, the Lord shows up looking like a Macedonian man. Just like in the temple, we find out uh, a little while ago, in the temple when he was in Jerusalem, right after the road to Damascus, the Lord appeared to him and said, this is not what you're going to do. The Lord stood by him. There is no equivocation here. 
that Paul knew who was talking about him. We, we, when we talked about his travel to Jerusalem and the number of times that people said don't go to Jerusalem and people said you're gonna be put in chains and the Holy Spirit told them to tell him these things and it, then it was still, well, you know, he could make some argument maybe if he wanted to that that really wasn't the Holy Spirit, that was just them. Jesus stood by him. The Lord stood by him and said, have courage. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Exclamation point. One word, one powerful word in Greek, a couple of words in English, don't fear. For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. We're going to camp out here for just a couple of minutes since it's point number one. Trust in Jesus. This should be trust in Jesus. This is where he would get the noun of trust in Jesus at this point. But Jesus says a couple of things to him. He says, don't be afraid. We got that. That's easy. Have courage. For as you have testified, I want to talk about testifying for just a minute. What did testifying look like for Paul? As we go back through Paul's time in Jerusalem, what did his testifying look like? Let's go back and count all the times Paul testified to Jesus while he was in Jerusalem. Well, let's see. He gets to Jerusalem. James meets him in chapter uh, 21, verse 20. And says, great job on the Gentiles. You need to look more Jewish. Go do these things. Paul goes to the temple. They attack him. He defends himself in front of the mob toward the end of chapter 21. Can I say something? Yep, you can. He gives his testimony in chapter 22. He talks about Damascus. Tells him about the intense light. says, he tells him who spoke to him, Jesus of Nazareth. They, all these things happened. I, I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish, he's saying. I, I uh, went to a Jewish guy named Ananias. I got my sight back. I, I returned to Jerusalem. I was praying in the temple. See how Jewish I am. I even was okay with Stephen being stoned. Jesus says to him, your testimony is not going to work with them. He says it'll be fine. Because Stephen, I was there when Stephen uh, was stoned. And, and then Jesus said, get up. Go to the Gentiles. And that's when they attacked. That's when the mob attacked him at that point. Where in that testimony did, Jesus, did Paul present the gospel of Jesus Christ? If, if you need something to kind of Compare it to, think back to Peter's sermon the day of Pentecost. Repent of your sin and be baptized in the name of Jesus. This Jesus whom you crucified is the Savior. Repent of your sins, turn to Jesus, and be baptized. That's the gospel. And Paul doesn't present the gospel to the mob. They attack him. He goes under Roman protection. The only other time he is given a testimony as recorded in Acts is the testimony before the Sanhedrin. And that testimony that he gave was, I'm a good guy. Why are you striking me? That's against the law. I didn't know the high priest was here. It's against the law for me to talk about him. I'm here for the resurrection. I'm here for the resurrection. Where was the gospel presentation in his testimony to the Sanhedrin? So what does the testifying look like? Well, we're, we're asking this because uh, what does Jesus mean when he says, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem? He hasn't testified much about Jesus. Barely mentioned him at all. Now, let's hold on for just a second. We're, we're not going to get there this morning, but eventually he is going to have a two-year conversation about Jesus with uh, Felix, the governor of this area. 
but that's going to be in Caesarea, not in Jerusalem. He's going to talk about Jesus eventually, but not in Jerusalem. So what testimony could Jesus be talking about? Is he talking about a testimony to the gospel? Mm, Probably not. The emphasis then must be on that word as. What does as mean in this verse? As you have testified. Does Jesus mean with the words you've used, the message that you've shared in Jerusalem, take courage, you're going to share that same message in Rome? What message? I'm here for the resurrection. I've been a good guy. Uh, uh, Damascus conversion, uh, Damascus road experience. But not the gospel? Oh, we don't think so. So instead of in the same, using the same testimony that you've given in Jerusalem, could Jesus have meant in the same situation that you have been testifying in Jerusalem, you're going to testify in Rome? What is Paul's situation? He's in chains. He's bound. He has no freedom. He's not the Roman citizen missionary Roman citizen, Jewish Christian missionary going wherever he wants to to share the gospel because he has that freedom. He, will, he is bound out of control now, uh, certainly out of his own control, in, in the control of the authorities. And is Jesus saying here, in the same way that you're talking in Jerusalem, in the same predicament, in the same situation that you find yourself in Jerusalem, that's the way you're going to Rome. It's a pretty good debate. In the end, it doesn't really matter how you come down on that because the result is the same. In the grand scheme, I I do think it makes a difference as we study it, and I think it's the number two. I think it's the as. It is in the predicament you're in, in the situation you're in, you're going to go to Rome, and you're going to testify for me. You haven't done much testifying for me. You've talked about yourself a whole lot here in Jerusalem. But in Rome, you're going to go to Rome in chains to testify about me. So don't be afraid. Trust in the Lord. Now we can use it as a verb. Trust in Jesus. Trust me, Paul. See, Jesus knew it's going to get worse. You, You think you're in chains now? You think there's a problem? Hold on. It's about to get worse, Paul. You're going to think there's no way I can get out of this. You're going to think that you're going to have to help me get you out of this, Paul. little foreshadowing right there. But you don't have to, Paul. I've got it. Be of good courage. Do not fear. Trust me. Don't be afraid. And then Jesus uses this uh, word of divine necessity when he says, it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. You must testify in Rome. Rome is a divine necessity. If we go all the way back to chapter 19, verse 21, where we see Paul's decision to disobey, he says, uh, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. And he says, after I've been there, he said, it is necessary... I must go to Rome. He has known it for months that the divine necessity was Rome, not Jerusalem. And Jesus stands by his bedside on this evening and says, you were right, you must go to Rome. And boy, you're going, but you're not going the way you thought. But, trust me, trust me, have courage. And Paul's going to need that courage because it just gets worse. We see in verses 12 through 22, in chapter uh, chapter 23, verse 12, when it was morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this plot. These men went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander, this would be to Claudius Lysias, the tribune, that he bring him down to you as if you were going to investigate his case more thoroughly. But before he gets near, we are ready to kill him. But the son of Paul's sister, we had no idea Paul had a sister, 
but he did, and at least a nephew, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander because he has something to report to him. So he took him, brought him to the commander and said, the prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand, led him aside and inquired privately, what is it you have to report to me? The Jews, he said, have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow as though they're going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry of him or about him. Don't let them persuade you because there are more than 40 of them lying in ambush, men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they have killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, don't tell anyone that you have informed me about this. Sanhedrin hasn't changed a bit since they uh, tried Jesus. It's different people, same ideas. Ananias in particular, this chief priest, was known for his ruthlessness. As a matter of fact, uh, their own Jewish histories of, of leadership do not speak of him kindly because of the things. They, they actually make a parody of a psalm in one of their books. They parody a psalm to be the exact opposite of what the psalm is supposed to get you to be. Gracious and kind and loving, and, but don't, you know... Don't, don't, not, not Ananias. I mean, he goes down there and, and steals the, the tithes from the priest, and, which he literally did. He, he would take the, 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 pre, the tithes that were supposed to feed the priests for himself. Not a great guy. And, and when we see the Sanhedrin doing the same thing they had always done, still against God. They still have not taken Gamaliel's advice. Remember Gamaliel's advice earlier in Acts? Y'all, if, if this is not of God, it's going to die. But if this is of God, there is nothing we can do to stop it. And if we try, we will be fighting against God. Still, still have ignored old Gamaliel. So the plot then is to, to kill him, to kill Paul, and everybody's fine with it. Well, that would not look good for Claudius Lysias uh, to have one of his Roman citizen, uh, at this point, untried, unconvicted, uh, uh, um, not convict, which when you're in jail, you're a prisoner, thank you, uh, a, one of his unconvicted Roman citizen prisoners get killed on the way to the courtroom. Not good. So they hatch this escape plan, and it works. Verse 23 of chapter 23, he summoned two of his centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at 9 tonight. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. 470 Roman soldiers to take Paul out of Jerusalem. Understand the intense hatred that these 40 Jewish men had for Paul. They knew the chances of going against the Romans, period, and succeeding were very small. They were willing to die at this point. If it had come to it, if they hadn't snuck out of town, they were willing to die. Claudius understood this is a major deal. They're not just playing around here. 470 troops to transport Paul. And then he wrote the following letter, verse 25. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he is a Roman citizen. He kind of left out some details there that would have made himself look not so good, like the whole part about him almost about to beat Paul and then hearing, wait, I was a citizen. He paints this picture of himself swooping in to be the hero to save Paul when actually he just didn't want any trouble and he'd have to file reports and let's beat Paul, get the truth out of him. Yeah, but whatever, uh, you know, no big deal. Verse 28, wanting to know the charge they were accusing him of, I brought him down before the Sanhedrin. I found out that the accusations were concerning questions of their law and that there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. Important point here, Paul's innocent. Claudius Lysias just admitted Paul is innocent from all these charges. 
When I was informed that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence. So the soldiers took Paul during the night and brought him to Antipatris as they were ordered. The next day they returned to the barracks, allowing the cavalry to go on with him. When these men entered Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. After he read it, he asked what province he was from. When he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing whenever your accusers also get here. He ordered to be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Not a horrible prison to go to, but Paul is still in prison. Felix asks him, where are you from? Felix is hoping he doesn't have to put up with this. Oh, aren't you some, please be under somebody else's jurisdiction. He's not. Felix wasn't a great guy. Felix was crooked. We're going to learn about that in a minute when he wants a bribe. Felix was a horrible administrator. The Jews didn't like him. Rome didn't like him. At some point, he gets called back by the Caesar because he is so horrible, and that's what's going to lead to another governor trying Paul, but we'll get there in a minute. Paul then goes before Felix for trial. Chapter 24. Stands before Felix. Their accusers come up. They have this guy named Tertullus, who is this wonderful orator and lawyer, and he, he, he flatters Felix. Oh, Felix, you're such a great administrator. Oh, you've done such wonderful things for the Jews, and we love you so much. All lies. But, you know, we need a good verdict out of this guy, and we don't have any witnesses or any evidence. Verse 5 of 24, we have found this man to be a plague, an agitator among all the Jews. He's telling him, this is a problem for Rome. It's not just a problem for Jews. I mean, yeah, we got the whole temple thing, and yeah, that was bad, but this guy is a problem for you, Felix. You need to take care of this. Throughout the Roman world, he says, a ringleader in the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple, and so we apprehended him. That's not really true. By examining him yourself, you will be able to discern the truth about these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews also joined in the attack, alleging that these things were true. Paul is now going to give his own defense, starting in chapter 10. And he is going to say uh, basically what got him to Jerusalem, verse 10 and 24. Because I know you have been a judge of this nation for many years, I am glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. You can verify for yourself that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. All this has happened in 12 days. It feels like it's been a year already, but since he got to Jerusalem to this point is 12 days. They didn't find me arguing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. Neither can they prove the the charges they are now making against me. But I admit this to you. I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way, capital way, the way of Jesus, which they all call a sect, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. I always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and men, After many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my people. While I was doing this, some Jews from Asia found me ritually purified in the temple without a crowd and without an uproar. It is they who ought to be here before you to bring charges if they have anything against me. Or let these men here state what wrongdoing they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Other than this one statement I shouted while standing among them, today I am on trial before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. Paul here admits, I was kind of jerky in court they could bring that accusation against me. Got it. Nothing else that they say can they bring against me. He does follow the way. He follows the way uh, because the prophets and the law point to the way. But I would challenge you again in this testimony before Felix to find a gospel presentation. You find Paul defending himself. You, you find Paul trying to get out of the situation But let's go back to the beginning of Acts. Let's go back to Peter and James before the Sanhedrin. And what did they say? You know what? You can beat us. You can threaten us. You can tell us no longer to speak in the name of Jesus. That's between you and God. As for us, we are going to speak in the name of Jesus no matter what. So beat us some more. We're just going to go out and tell people about Jesus. And make a clear presentation to you as well. Paul's not doing that. 
Paul is not presenting the gospel when he has these. This is the high court, the supreme court of Jerusalem, of the Jews, of Israel. This is the pinnacle. Twice he's been before them with the opportunity to share the gospel with them, and he has not done it. And thus starts a two-year conversation with Felix. Verse 22 of chapter 24. Since Felix was well informed about the way, Felix knew about this stuff, probably because his wife was Jewish. He adjourned the hearing saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. He ordered that the centurion keep Paul under guard, though he could have some freedom, and that he should not prevent any of his friends from meeting his needs. Several days later, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him on the subject of faith in Christ Jesus. For the first time, Paul's presenting the gospel. For the first time in 12 days, and he's no longer in Jerusalem, he is presenting the gospel to a Roman and a Jewish woman. Not to his people in Jerusalem. Not to the Sanhedrin. Now, as he spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became afraid and replied, Leave me for now, but when I have an opportunity, I'll call for you. At the same time, he was also hoping that Paul would offer him money. So he sent for him quite often and conversed with him. After two years had passed, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and because Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. So Paul, in this two-year conversation, finally presents the gospel, presents it to Felix and his wife. When given the opportunity, you see that he talks about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment. He's preaching good sermons, good messages. Luke doesn't expound on those things, but these are good messages that make Felix uncomfortable. Felix knows, I am uh, neither righteous, nor do I have self-control, and I really don't want to hear about the judgment to come. So it says he gets nervous and says, oh, we'll, 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 we'll talk about that later. Became afraid, he says. And for you history nerds that just love little factoids, Drusilla, Felix's wife, and their son, Agrippa, were killed when Mount Vesuvius erupted uh, near Pompeii. They were killed by the volcano. I love those little connections with history that we know and Bible history. When we see those things coincide, I love that. And, and I wish there was more, we had more of that. But of course, I'm a nerd. So it's okay. But if that comes up on Trivial Pursuit, you got it. So this two-year conversation, two years, what could he have been doing in Rome these two years? Not having a conversation with one guy, but witnessing to an entire city. Nero was Caesar right now. He was in charge. But the first few years of Nero's reign is considered a mini golden age of Rome. It was later that he went all crazy and started killing Christians and anybody else he could. But for a while, Nero's reign was, oh, this is great, this is wonderful, everybody loves Nero. It's why Paul's going to appeal to Caesar in a minute. This will work out fine, Caesar's a good guy. Then Festus comes along, chapter 25, the new governor and he has this trial before Festus. Festus asked the same things. Festus was new. He was inexperienced. Felix could have let Paul go when he was called back to Rome and taken out of his position. He could have just sent Paul on. He didn't. To make the Jews happy, he leaves him in prison. Festus comes in. He's got to figure out what's going on. So let's get those witnesses back. Let's get the Sanhedrin back up here. Uh, why, why do I have this guy in prison still? Verses 1 through 10. He talks to the Jews about it. And they said, well, bring him down here. And he said, no, I need to get to Caesarea. Y'all come up there. Uh, they, they come up. But he talks to Paul and says, hey, he doesn't tell him I want to make the Jews happy. That's what he's doing. I'd really like to make the Jews happy my first few days at work. Could you go, can we go, you mind going back to Jerusalem to have this trial again? That's verses 1 through 9. Verse 10, Paul knows, and here's point number 2, trust in Caesar. Paul knows that if we go back to Jerusalem, I could be killed. As a matter of fact, we're going to read that uh, that's the case. They, they hear about the possibility, hey, we'll kill them on the way this time. No big deal. Great. Woohoo. These guys that took a vow not to eat or drink two years later, they're probably pretty hungry and thirsty 
at this point. They really want to kill Paul so they can have a meal. We, do, do you want to go back to Jerusalem? Paul says, no. Verse 10, chapter 25. Paul replied, I am standing in the Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have, done nothing, I have done no wrong to the Jews, as even you yourself know very well. If then I did anything wrong and, and, and am deserving of death, I'm not trying to escape death. Hint, yeah, he was. But if there's nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then, another, then after Festus conferred with his counsel, he replied, You've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar, you will go. I will appeal to Caesar. Just a few, well, two years before this, Jesus has said, have courage. You're going to go to Rome. It is a divine necessity. It will happen. There's no question about it. You don't have to wonder, will I ever get to Rome? Yes, you, Paul, are going to Rome. Have courage. Trust me. Don't be scared of mobs. Don't be scared of Felix. Don't be scared of Festus. Don't be scared of the Sanhedrin. Trust me, you are going to Rome. And in the same way you've been here, you're going there. Does that mean you're going to testify the same way? Well, based on what we've read of his testifying, hope not, but maybe. Or does it mean you're just going in chains the same way you are now? Probably. But regardless of what Jesus meant when he stood by Paul's bedside, what he said was, be courageous, you must go to Rome. And when Paul heard that the next stop from Caesarea was not Rome, but Jerusalem, did he trust Jesus? Or did he trust Caesar? At this point, his trust is in Caesar. The appeal to Caesar is a lack of faith. And there are two ways this could be a lack of faith. Two pictures I get in my mind of previous biblical examples. One would be Abraham. Isn't it a lack of faith like Abraham uh, was when he decided, yeah, God promised a kid, but it's not coming through Sarah, so I'm going to have to help God along here and, and, and make a kid on my own, make a kid of, of promise, right? With Hagar, I, I'm going to take it into my own hands. God, you said this was going to happen, but I don't like the way or the time frame you're doing it, so let me help you out. So is Paul helping Jesus like Abraham helped God? Still a lack of faith. Or maybe, maybe it's more a lack of faith like the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus said, got in the boat, said, let's go to the other side, and promptly went to sleep. And these uh, great men of the sea, fishermen, got in the midst of a storm and they wake Jesus up. Do you not even care that we're going to die? What did Jesus say on the other side? We're going to the other side. He didn't say, hey, we're going to get in the middle and die because I don't care. He said, we're going to the other side. That's where they were going. And the guys in the boat got scared and said, Jesus, you don't even care about us. He said, do you have no faith? Do you not trust that I'm going to do in you what I said I'm going to do? Do you not trust that I can do with you what I said I'm going to do? Do you not trust that when I say we're going to the other side of the, uh, of the, of the, the sea, that we're going to the other side of the sea? Paul, do you not trust when I said we are, you are going to Rome, that you are going to Rome? Didn't say it would be easy. As a matter of fact, looks like I said you're going to be there the same way you are here. In chains, you may go through some other issues to get there. But you are going to Rome. But Paul couldn't face the storm like the disciples in the boat. Now, you want to hear some little bit of irony. If you want to, go ahead and read over later on. Not right now. Chapter 27. When Paul literally faces a storm in a boat... And Jesus tells him what to do, and Paul listens. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. I mean, it's, it's good. It's a good ending, happy ending. But we're not there yet. Caesar didn't have the power Jesus did. 
Paul did not need to appeal to Caesar. He only needed to appeal to his Lord. And he didn't. So what's our takeaway this morning? First of all, and maybe only, who is Lord for you? Who is Lord for us? In whom have you put your trust? In the next decision, in the middle of a storm, waiting on the promise of God, who have you trusted? God or yourself or other people? A Caesar, a new Lord. Festus, later on, is going to talk about writing a letter to Caesar, and he's going to say, I don't know what to write to my Lord. Same word. I mean, Luke knows the Lord stood by Paul and said, have courage. And Festus said, the Lord that you've appealed to, I don't know what I'm going to say to him. Festus understood. Who is Lord for you? Who is Lord for us as a church? Disobedience does not accomplish God's will. Not doing what he says, doesn't doesn't that seem obvious? That's one of those duh statements. Michael, really? Okay, thanks for telling us something we didn't know. Then why don't I live like it if I know it? Why don't I live as if only obedience accomplishes God's will? Somehow thinking, well, if I'm disobedient... That'll help him out. Moron. Our own ideas don't accomplish his will. I may have a plan. I may have a way like Abraham. I think I can help God along. God, thanks. I got it now. I see what you're doing. I'll figure the rest out. That's not the way God works. The church, our church, the church, does not need God's, uh, does not need the world to succeed. Y'all, We don't need politicians. We don't need a government. We don't need friends in high places. We don't need the right kind of laws. We don't need anything to see God's kingdom come on earth except the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of Jesus Christ. That's all we need. And when we appeal to Caesar to help us, we are not being obedient or faithful. And so we do not appeal to the government. We do not appeal to a president, we appeal to God. Because God doesn't need your help. He's got it. He's got it under control. What God needs is your, what God needs is my obedience. What God needed was Paul to have courage. And trust what he said, you must go to Rome. What he needs, church, is for us to have courage and know what he says. We must reach sulfur. Have courage, you must reach sulfur. Have courage, you must share the gospel. Have courage, you must do my will. And that's all we need. But you know what? You do need him as Lord. You do need him as Lord. God does not need you or your help He wants to use you. He will use you. But he does not need you or your help to get his will done. But you have to have him for everything. And you can only have him through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because of the brokenness of this world, we have messed up God's design, his plan. His plan was perfect and sin ruined that. Our sin ruins that. Our disobedience ruins God's plan every dadgum day. At least my sin does. Oh, how he could use me if I were more obedient every day. And that brokenness that results is horrible, but it should push us back into his arms. And as an unbeliever, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, that's what he's using that brokenness for, to call you in to his arms, for you to experience the gospel, that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He was crucified and three days buried. Hallelujah, what a savior. He rose from the grave 
to prove that he had power over death and sin. If we repent of our sins and we believe that gospel message, we will be saved. And we can begin to understand God's will, pursue God's will, recover God's will, know the things that he wants us to do, and we can then be obedient. But will you follow him today? Unbeliever, will you trust Jesus Christ? Believer, will you start being obedient and quit thinking your will is the best will, but instead trust him and quit trying to help him with your great ideas and your disobedience and see how he will take you to the other side through that storm because he said, that's where we're going. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you... Still, you still correct us. You still love us. You still, even when we appeal to Caesar, you respond with, nope, come on, come on. With me, trust me, have courage, have faith in me. God, may we have that courage. May we have that faith. May we trust in Uh, Trust the Lord and not have trust in Caesar. God, purify our hearts. Lord, someone this morning who's hearing this message and they've not trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, May uh, may this be their day of salvation. As they watch from home online, as they sit here in the room and they've struggled, but today is their day of response. We pray that you would work in hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's your decision today? Believer, what do you need to give to him? Unbeliever, give him your life. Respond this morning in salvation by accepting Christ, obedience in baptism, renewing, rededicating your life, being willing to do what he has called you to do, uh, being used according to his purpose, joining our church. If you're online watching this, comment, send us a message. Let us know what God is doing in your life, how we can pray with you. Uh, Tom will be to my right. Paul won't be to my right. Tom will be to my right. I'll be over here to the left. If you'd like us to pray with you, we'd love to. Let's stand. Let's worship. And in this time, let's do business with God.